This episode is dedicated to the memory of Jonathan Larson and is recorded in celebration of not only everything that he has done for the theater community, but for the queer community as a whole. We love you, Jonathan Larson, and we wish that you were here to see the amazing thing that Rent has become. Enjoy today's episode! there, my fellow bohemians. I'm Amelia, and tonight, on a very special Gay Anarchist Yoga and Erotic Cooking Association, we're making NATO's blood pressure go up by talking about a novel-turned-libretto-turned-full-fledged-opera-turned-musical-turned-movie, Rent. <laughs> but when you put it that way... <laughs> The day we have long awaited has arrived. <laughs> uh, so we can finally stop talking about Rent, huh? And tonight, I'm joined by three of the best performance artists you've definitely never heard of. First up, they won't accompany themselves with the dulcet sounds of a plastic pickle tub because they prefer more traditional instruments like the washboard and the spoon. It's NATO! <laughs> I would like to preface this by saying that I am doing... The Kate Bush stance, you know the one. Hi, I'm Nato <laughs> Kitch. Mama Mia! Here we go again. That's right, I'm resurrecting my somewhat attended one person interpretive dance show, Abacus, where the music of Abba meets what some have described as dancing? I, for one, can't listen to Chakatitita anymore without remembering that time the U.S. staged a coup to help save United Fruit from a dem democratically elected leader in Guatemala who was instituting policies to help the people over helping businesses. And who hasn't listened to Dancing Queen and been inspired to topple a corrupt monarchy with no representation for his people? Come on! <laughs> Abacus. Show runs until I get a cease and desist like the one I got from Safwad that one time. <laughs> oh man! I didn't realize we were doing a whole one-minute sales pitch. <laughs> well, I mean, you're definitely gonna have to give me, give me, give me a sneak preview to that after midnight. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> Next. They prefer to measure a year in their life in cans of Red Bull and rent they have paid. It's Ro! Hello, everybody. My name is Ro, and for three nights only, you can find me in the middle of the fucking street performing my one-person show, 15 Gay Screams, and why I made them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's all the sales pitch I have. I didn't realize we were doing a whole one-minute spiel. <laughs> Do any of those 15 gay screams fr come from nine dead gay guys? Inquiring um. man's minds want to know. <laughs> Maybe a few. <laughs> nine dead gay guys and four alive ones. <laughs> And some in between. And, and two that we're not quite sure about. <laughs> They're kind of moving. <laughs> and finally... They're over the moon about being able to jump on stage at your nearest beatnik cafe's bi-weekly bi -weekly open mic. It's Mel! 
Hey, this is Mel. So I'm part of a performance group. We are called By The Way, and we are made up of 12 bisexuals who spend our time in performance, of course, seducing everyone because that's all that bisexuals know how to do. <laughs> Once it's we have true. successfully seduced over half of the audience, we then spend 20 minutes getting them to understand the evils of Ronald Reagan. And then we all just chant <laughs> fuck Ronald Reagan until somebody finally leaves to go piss on his grave. <laughs> well, I hope that show trickles down all over me. <laughs> and oh Ronald Reagan's grave. <laughs> Let the wealth trickle down on me, Daddy Reagan. <laughs> oh, amazing. <clears throat> all right. Rent. More than loosely based on the 1896 opera La Boheme, Rent debuted in 1996, a hundred years after the opera, exactly to the day, as an off-Broadway musical, which was turned into a 2005 movie starring most of the original Broadway cast. The story follows a group of young, struggling artists in New York City's Alphabet City, a thriving bohemian enclave in Lower Manhattan's East Village in the 1990s. Mark is a documentary filmmaker with a hand-cranked camera. Maureen, his ex, is a performance artist. Roger, one of his roommates, is a recovering addict and musician with HIV. His love interest, Mimi, is a dancer and active addict, active addict, also with HIV. Roger and Mark's other roommate, Colin, is a philosophy professor, and his partner, Angel, is a musician and drag queen, also with HIV. Maureen's girlfriend's a lawyer. Their landlord, Benny, used to be their friend but sold out and basically have the characters have HIV and AIDS, and it's the 90s. And now mandatory. Go watch this if you haven't seen it. Spoilers ahead. Also, trigger warning for mentions of intravenous drug use and addiction. So, what did we all think? <clears throat> um, before we get into what we all think, uh, can I just point out that Mel is back? <laughs> Hi, Mel! <laughs> <laughs> Making her triumphant return to the Gay Anarchist Yoga and Erotic Cooking Association podcast. Good to be back. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> Please stay. Please. <laughs> <laughs> we don't mean to sound like unicorn hunters, but we really need a fourth. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So, Rent. Rent. <clears throat> um, it's a movie based on a musical. <laughs> ish <laughs> um so i have to say um i first came across rent in high school because some of the kids in the high school choir would sing la vie bohème because it's really fun to sing when you're just like rattling off a whole bunch of nonsense stuff and i was like what in the world are you talking about and they're like oh it's from rent and then I rented Rent, and um, I watched it. Um, the first time I saw it was actually the uh, stage production filmed live on Broadway. And it, like, rocked my world. I, like, was a complete perspective sh shift for me. I was like, how? Like, there, there, you can write about things like AIDS and drug use and have a song with words like dildos in it like that rocked my little high school mind 
and I've kind of been in love with the show ever since. I, I I got it. I know exactly where I got it. I, when I was in high school um, in Texas, there's this thing called UIL. Uh, I think we all know what that is, but for our non-Texas listeners, that's kind of like an academic competition. It's like if you ever watched that horrible show Glee um, and know how they talk about regionals, basically UIL is like regionals. Um, but for theater. But for kids. theater, and you have to cut down your play to like 60 minutes, if I remember correctly. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it's not only theater, it's also like social studies and spelling and math. And... Oh, I was talking about the theater portion in particular, because <laughs> I just remember like the bare bones set and like the 60 minute having to like cut down your play to 60 minutes and the speed reads you would have to do through like shows for UIL. Remind me sometime to tell you about the time I had to be like dragged off in a, in a potato sack off the set. Um, oh but, God. um, so like we went to state, uh, for social studies and theater, I think my junior year. And so like, uh, we got to like, sort of like hang out and go crazy. And they took us to a Walmart in Austin. Um, as one does growing up in Texas. <laughs> well, this is like the school taking us there. Just go and hang out at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> and so... And so I was at the DVD section, and I just saw Rent, and I was just like, I was like, oh, as I do the thing that no one does, which is I read the back, and I was like, oh my gosh, this looks so cool, like, and I was just kind of, like, discovering my sexuality at the time, so I was like, so I, like, bought it, and then when I had, like, uh, the hotel room to myself with my little uh, jerry-rigged um, PS2 to the hotel uh, TV, I, like, watched it, and I thought I was like, it's definitely something that high school me really loved but 32 nearing 33 year old me wrote a 12 page manifesto on apparently um, <laughs> yeah nato wrote this 12 page manifesto in our google keep notes fun and fact took up all of the characters yes. who had to switch to google docs fun fact that we all learned today is that google keep does in fact have a character limit um, <laughs> On the plus side, though, I think we can all agree that my summary in in Gay Extra was actually scarily correct for having not watched the movie from high school until now. It really is. (laughs) Very accurate. (laughs) I missed a few things. I forgot that that Maureen and Jolene, Joanne, sorry. Yeah, I forgot that they broke up. uh, And I was wrong about Rosaria Dawson dying. Um, so, and other things that... Which, to be fair, Mimi does in the original. So, I was close. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think... I'm kind of <laughs> glad Rosario Dawson didn't die, just for the record. <laughs> what about you, Mel? What was your first experience with the, with Rent? Um, it was back in high school when I made friends with both a bunch of theater kids and then kids who weren't in theater but still loved to perform, so there was a lot of singing the songs from it. And I had to sneak watch it because it was not a movie that my parents would approve of. So I was watching it in snippets on one of the like premium channels. And then later, oh, yeah, I got to revisit it when I was older. And I love Rent. Like I love the music from it. It's it's a good play. It's it's better as a stage play than it is as a movie, for various oh, reasons. Oh, for sure. But <laughs> we're gonna have I a have long to... conversation about that later. That's yeah, one of the sure topics for sure. That's why I'm not getting too into it yet. But you know, I do love it. It's one. I 
I watched it with my husband. I sang along to basically every song except Your Eyes, which, by the way, Your Eyes sucks. I will fight Holler. you. I'm snapping. <laughs> oh, I think my husband actually put it best. He went, oh, look, she came back from the dead because that song was so terrible. It made me <laughs> you're lucky. You're lucky I'm able to laugh at the things that I love because I actually unironically love that song. That's fine. You are allowed to love it. You know, I love Jason X, even though it's stupid as hell. Jason X is the best Friday the 13th movie next to Jason Takes Manhattan, and I will die on that hill as somebody that watched Jason X on Friday the 13th most recently. Thank you. So, okay, can we can we talk a little bit about the characters in this movie? Because a lot of the plot is driven by the characters. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think in order to really understand what's going on in this movie, we really have to, like, dig down and, like, like find out who these characters are and why they're all apparently such shitty people. <laughs> I mean, they kind of are, right? Yeah. Like, Let's start with Mark. Why? Okay. Well written yeah. character. Very well written character. I cannot stand Mark. Um. Very stupid. When, when, Very stupid. When boy. I did. When I did this show, um, after my freshman year of college, I played Mark, so I <laughs> I think I'm probably more than most people am qualified to talk about Mark. Um, he's kind of detached, right, from everything, mm-hmm. and it kind of is more exacerbated in the play than the movie, because Mark is, like, the active narrator of the show. He takes a lot of time to monologue directly to the audience and so he always feels kind of like removed from the action like i know um anthony rap in an interview or in a deleted scene or like a commentary or something was talking about how awkward it was for him re-watching the movie and that slow pan across the table at the end of live vivo m where, like, Roger's kissing Mimi, and Collins is holding on to Angel, and Maureen and Joanne are doing their thing, and Mark's just in the middle of the group dancing his ass off. He's like, he could have like, made out with his camera. To me, is kind of, yeah, that kind of to me is the epitome of Mark's character. He just, like, stands apart from everything and is, like, super removed. He's always just, he, he is that douchey documentary film bro. Like, so I have a certain coworker uh, who literally is in Ukraine right now shooting the war with an eight millimeter <laughs> hand cranked. I think it's an eight millimeter <laughs> with a hand cranked camera. It's the exact same camera that that Mark has in the movie, um, like taking selfies with like automatic rifles and stuff. But like. It's totally just for internet points and for that person's career as, like, a filmmaker as opposed to, like, any actual human interest in the story. That's the sense that I get from Mark. I do wish that Mark specifically, because uh, they're very exploitative. It makes sense that they'd be kind of like the narrator. I haven't seen the stage show, so... I'm just kind of reacting and and sort of modifying my opinion based on what comes up with the information, if that's all right. 
No, it yeah, kinda, totally. It kind of makes yeah. sense that he would be the narrator character because he's very sort of like exploitative of people. Oh, yes. And, and I, that, I that is very intentional. But I wish there was more consequence to that. Yeah. Like, we have this amazing scene uh, with this one lady that he's filming that basically calls him out on it. And then the next scene is just like, let's forget about that and sing La Vie William. <laughs> <laughs> but like, for yeah. That... Mel, were you about to say something? Uh, no, I was actually about to bring up the scene where they called it and it's like, they want credit for, oh, we, we had a scene where he gets called out, but it doesn't really fix him from yeah anything. Yeah, it, it like... I'm glad it happens, but their reaction is kind of like, well... Yeah, their reaction is literally, well, let's sing a song about how we're going to move to Santa Fe and open a restaurant. <laughs> Which is and a totally realistic like idea. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're trying to make him feel better about it rather than going, hey, you know, she had a point. Maybe stop bringing your fucking camera everywhere. And, like, you know, you see the life support people being a little... Like, they all say yes to him filming, but you can tell that they are actually uncomfortable and anybody who was paying attention would have put the fucking camera away. Yeah. I will say, in Mark's defense, that for, like, conservation purposes and, like, documentation purposes, it is nice to have footage like that because so much of, like, like documentary, like, archival footage can be, like... When I go out my job and i have to document people in public there's a lot that goes into that as far as agreements with the business like the the we did this we did an uh, um we did this one event with this one business i'm trying to make it as big as possible and like the agreement we had was we wouldn't shoot people's faces so i had to I had to basically shoot people from like the neck down, body down, make sure there's no distinguishing features because we're talking about people's privacy. And this is specifically the support group. This is a public setting. This is people who have not been notified or given the chance to opt out of being filmed. Uh, it's a lot different from saying, hey, we're going to be filming, someone's going to be filming a documentary this day, than it is someone showing up with a camera and putting it in your face and asking, hey, is this okay? Yeah, and, like, what are you, what are you going to do otherwise? Are you just going to, like, leave the support group? Well, let's say he puts out the footage of the people who are supporting. He's not only violating their privacy, he's violating their family's privacy. But the thing is, he doesn't really get any consequence for his actions. He doesn't get any consequence for that. It doesn't outright say, you know, this is ethically wrong and we shouldn't do it. The movie basically ends with him showing Right. Home. It's like he he's so far removed from everything that's going on or he's removed himself to that degree where, like, ethics, in at least in his own home filmmaking, like, hasn't likely hasn't crossed his mind like he's not thinking about that when he's pointing the camera at somebody absolutely I think Mark has the privilege to be like super counterculture and you know punk and all this other stuff without too many consequences and very 
little effort um, because, you know, I think he knows at the end of the day that if he were to go back, like, his parents are there to support him and, like, you know, help him out and stuff like that. Um, whereas a lot of the people that he's filming and exploiting don't really have that choice. And I think that's part of why Mark is able to be so detached and just kind of removed from it. Because he is. Because he's more like a tourist than he is, like, somebody who, you know, like, doesn't have a family to go back to. He's the guy uh, from Everything is Free. <laughs> so what about, no. what about, um, what about Mark and, uh, not Mark, uh, what about Roger and Mimi? Which one is Roger? Is he Roger the dead girlfriend guy? Guitarist. Roger's, yeah. the, Roger's the one who's writing one great song before he dies. Oh, yeah, 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 dead girlfriend, dude. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, dead yeah. girlfriend, dude. Sad story, by the way. It is. Uh, <laughs> I should probably mention at this time that my late best friend was also named April and killed herself with heroin. Uh, so I have a very special place in my heart for Roger, even though I do not like one song, Glory. Um, because I, I will like, fight you. I will, I fight, will you. fight you too. <laughs> you can talk shit about your eyes all you want, but one song, Glory, is amazing. <laughs> We'll agree, <laughs> but I will agree to disagree on that. But I want to say, like, with that in mind, um, to me, Roger is the most relatable character personally. Um, oh, absolutely. He's like, so we like to talk about, I guess, about how hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Um, and Roger is kind of like that. He's so, he's been wrapped up in himself for about a year. So, um, Roger's backstory, he, he and his girlfriend, April, were on like a, a drug bender. I guess they were doing heroin or something. And, uh, had been sharing, yeah. yeah, had been sharing needles. And so intravenously, they both contracted AIDS and in the stage play, it is uh, revealed that April committed suicide by uh, by um, in the bathroom <laughs> by herself, and that Roger is implied to be the one that found the note and the body, and has been for the last year um, kind of holed up in his apartment and hasn't left. Well, yeah, you know, keep in mind that he's also de- he was detoxing. He's off yeah. of the drugs, so he deserves yeah. more sympathy there because that's addiction is a disease, and that's not an easy thing to do. It's not, yeah, right. He's he's basically been in withdrawal for a year, and now that he's out of that, he's trying to process the grief, and at the same time, Mimi comes into his life, who is. I guess you might say a lot like April in in some ways. Um, and their main crux, and I will I will argue this for fucking ever that Mimi and Roger are good for each other because Mimi allows Roger to open up and like step mm-hmm. out of his cage and live more in the moment and Roger uh, 
as much as he can, tries to curb Mimi's more dangerous and self-harmful impulses. And in as much as that's a thing, I think they're a really good couple. But obviously, things don't work out for the best always. I love Mimi. Does anybody want to jump in? I, I want to say as somebody... So... The characters in Rent, I just want to say, are all very well written. I think the fact that they spur such an emotional response from us and other people is a testament to that fact. And I just feel like Roger and Mimi's relationship feels very real. And I, I just, I agree with everything Rose says. I think they're good for each other in some ways, and in some ways they're not, and it doesn't work out. And I think. That that's just like very true to life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like Mimi is just summed up in one one line from Would You Light My Candle? I'm nineteen. Yeah, she is nineteen. She's true. young. She doesn't she's know very what she's young. doing. She's, she's very, very she's young. young. She's a baby. She's kind of she's like in her feelings and like living her life. And, like, doesn't necessarily care that she's self-destructing. I think... At least at, at least at the beginning. I think that there are different sides of a coin, right? Because in, I, we don't know if Mimi has ever witnessed somebody, like, coming off detox, you know, overdosing, killing themselves, that kind of thing. Whereas Roger has had that life experience. So he has, like, a a more realistic view of where her life is and I or is going. And I remember myself at 19 and that was like me and everybody around me that age was like hardcore in their party phase, kind of like devil may care. Like, I don't give a fuck. I might die tomorrow. Who cares? Because nobody had really experienced like the negative side of that yet. Truly. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're young. You're in. Yeah. You're 19 again. What do you, what yeah. do you care? <laughs> Like Mel said, she's 19. <laughs> you know, what? she's only 19 and she has AIDS. Like, you know, if you know you're dying, you're that young, it, it's kind of understandable the why you might turn to drugs. I'm not saying you should, but it's understandable. I think also... We don't know if she got it through sex or through intravenous use. They never actually say. Yeah. The one thing I'll say about Mimi and Roger is I really... I, I love Rosaria Dawson, uh, for the record. Um, I would she, make her my wife. She's the best thing in the movie for me. Uh, <laughs> she's, because I'm so used to movies, like, portraying women's sexuality in a negative light. And we'll get to that when we get to Maureen. Um, but, like, Mimi is very much, it feels like she's in control of, like, her, at least her sexuality you know, in the in the strip club, in her life, she's just so confident. She's absolutely like she seems like she's in control, even if she doesn't have control of every aspect. You know, and I really love that about oh. her because she's just a fun character. She has some, and the thing I will say is the one thing that Mimi does that a lot of the other characters don't do, 
which I think is a testament to Rosario Dawson, is she can act while singing. Uh, <laughs> Rosario which, Dawson is a queen. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry. Whenever I see Rosario Dawson in a movie, all I can think of is the scene in Clerks 2 where she's talking with the main characters about going ass to mouth. I would love it. <laughs> <laughs> only she said that in this movie uh. but like I totally get what NATO's saying about like like female sexuality and really owning it like she feels so empowered right when she's singing out tonight which is oh, by it. the way a show stopping number and she does it amazingly like um, no one but Rosario could have like pulled that number off as well as she did. Like, which is opinion. where I gotta lose credit for the people who are a stage play fan. I think she did a better job than the original singer. Yes. I'm sorry. I've heard the original rent cast recording, and I do not care for the original. Uh, Rosario have... Dawson is Mimi. <laughs> Yeah. For me, she, yeah. and that also could be because I I watched the movie first. You know, sometimes it's whatever you're introduced to first right. wins. Right, you kind of you kind of have a preference for what you're the most familiar with. Right, and I will say that most of the cast of the movie is from the original Broadway mm-hmm. cast. Uh, they recast Joanne um, and Mimi, Joanne and they Mimi. recast Mimi. Uh, Joanne. By the way, the actress who played Joanne is amazing, and she, she also um, performed on Broadway. Um, she was a member of the final cast. So if you watch the uh, live Broadway performance, you'll see her again. Uh, and she does amazing there as well. <laughs> her voice is so good. <laughs> so good. Oh my god, yes. Um... <laughs> So, what about Maureen and Joanne? Like, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> can we just, like, um, split them up? They they fix some stuff in the movie, kind of, because it shortens their relationship, and it doesn't look like they necessarily got back together, whereas the play, you're kind of like, oh my god, Joanne, you're a lawyer, you're smarter than this. Stop. <laughs> Please stop. Because she just keeps going back to her so many times. And, um... It's Maureen's animal magnetism. Yeah, Maureen is fun. She's a fun character, but she is that stereotypical bisexual, I'm going to flirt with anybody that moves. And that pisses me off even more. She's never called bisexual. She is literally called a lesbian at least twice. Isn't she like being like So I think think this really, really uh, brings up the question, right? Um, So we're talking about a play that was written in the 90s. Um, and I feel like that, that kind of just hardcore dichotomy and like kind of more monogamous outlook is kind of more of a Gen Xer thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and the movie was made in the 2000s. It came out in 2005 before like polyamory and was really part of the conversation and bisexuality was just kind of starting to like be touched upon. Um, so I think through a more modern lens, how do y'all think that Maureen's sexuality would have been treated? Oh my god, I'm just, I'm just imagining like 
Polly Pan Maureen is like that meme that's like, all oh, the ass, and it's mine! <laughs> I don't think, Mar I do not think even today that they would make Maureen a sympathetic character because the way they show her in the movie and the stage play, she's very selfish, and they want you to think she's selfish. You're supposed to think, oh, poor Mark, she cheated on him. You're supposed to think, right. oh, poor Joanne, she's just horrible to her. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with polyamory, but if you are polyamorous, everybody has to be consenting. Oh, yeah. So even Constant if they were to make her polyamorous, she would still be violating the rules, and then she'd just be making polyamory look bad instead of bisexuality. I think a lot of people are, like, horrible to Maureen. I read that she was, like, based on the writer's, like, ex who ran off with, like, a woman. And it just feels like it feels it she feels like a character written by someone who's very bitter that their ex left them for someone else so yes and no that, like, because maureen does have a counterpart in the original 1896 opera and maybe puccini was just a salty bitch too that was writing about his ex <laughs> Who knows? but like that's that's a that's a plot point in both plays um so while i'm sure that maureen was definitely probably based on to a certain extent on like you know the fact that she's a lesbian or goes for joanne is more because of his ex leaving him for a woman and that's why she left him for a woman in the movie instead of or the musical instead of for a man like the the characters like they're kind of the same in both things well she just seems like more like an um, a, a mythos than like in a character like she's just basically embodies like all these things that mark and joanne like choose to see about her than what she actually is you know, it's kind of right. like it, it, Mark says, you know, the pookie line. He says all these things to like implant this seductress, sexually promiscuous, very like slutty and like uh, uh, um, like very uh, temptress kind of character. And that's kind of all we see about her. We don't actually. And the only time we really get a different side of her is during her performance her performance art piece and kind of near the end uh, when like she's actually, when she's just kind of almost reconciling with Joanne. But wouldn't you say that her performance art piece is kind of just par for the course for her character as a whole? Because like she does this whole, like kind of very, uh, and no insightful's the wrong word. She incites people incendiary. She kind of does this very like incendiary yeah. like performance art piece to this crowd of people who are already pissed off because they're getting screwed over by landlords and they're homeless or impoverished and like literally can't afford to live where they are. Um, and then like the second that any kind of violence starts happening or people start actually getting mad and like you know rioting as they should, we here at the Gate Echo podcast do believe that uh you know protests are good um <laughs> and uh anyways but like she she kind of does this whole incendiary performance art piece but when it comes down to it she's standing up in the stage like oh no please stop it's supposed to be peaceful like you know it mm, it, it really it just gives me vibes of like well but like think of target like think of the businesses that these people are like you know, affecting by showing their anger at the fact that they're getting killed discriminately. 
right by police. I think, I think one of my favorite <laughs> notes from myself to toot my own horn is uh, I don't know why they think she insta- installed the riot. She didn't tell them to oink. She told them to moo. <laughs> <laughs> I will say one of the most gratifying things to me about the stage show as opposed to the movie is in the stage show, you really kind of get the sense that like Mark and Joanne becoming friends is actually like Maureen's biggest headache. (laughs) I love that for them. Well, and okay, so this this brings up a whole other point because, you know, you talked in your notes about La Vie Boheme and just like kind of, actually not just with that song, just like there's this feeling, right, of like being edgy, like edgy teenagers and stuff like that. Um, But La Vie Boheme, I think, is one of the most iconic songs from this this film. And I think if you're talking about like bohemian, like counterculture art and, you know, anarcho-punks from the 90s especially, like, you are really talking about kind of this uh, counterculture art that's being created, right? Um, when you're talking about the Bohemian era in the late 1890s, there was a lot of, um, you know, free love. It was kind of like the 1890s equivalent of the hippies. Um, when you're talking about 90s, like, you know, punk anarchist squatters, uh, you're talking about this very, like, sexually open also and kind of, like, shock value Um counterculture art movement uh i think john waters is actually like a really good example of that because you know (laughs) divine eating shit straight out of a dog's ass in pink flamingos i am glad Um, you brought that up though because (laughs) okay (laughs) so that's what that so yeah just to to put the question out there like you know this film is supposed to be about people who are kind of in that movement so, the difference between the bohemian art movement and the people in this film is that the people in this film are stupid. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. Okay, so go with me, right? Like, so, be, so bohemian artists are like, there. there's a lot of different people with a lot of different definitions about what is a bohemian artist. Some people are lump in like cult artists or countercultural artists or like all kinds of things. So like the, the, the definition is bullshit. Like a bohemian artist is whatever you want it to be, but most people associate with associate it with sort of like, you know, that hippie movement, you know, free love and all that stuff. And like anything that is anti-corporate, you know, mm-hmm. uh, anarchist light in a way, but art. And so they have this sort of like grungy, like, you know, stick to the man attitude. And it's exactly what, you know, that stereotype of the bohemian artist is. But actual bohemian artists would fucking hate these people because fucking actual bohemian artists, countercultural artists, cult artists, like they very much were about literally sticking it to the man and finding ways to screw over corporations, companies and everything like that. You look at the ways that artists have famously screwed over people trying to exploit them, and like uh, uh, "Cocksucker Blues" by the Rolling Stones for is is a great example, right? You know their contracts said they had to make one more album. It didn't say they had to make a comprehensive or marketable album, so they made "Cocksucker Blues." Other artists have done like magazine spreads, like intentionally bad, but you know within the terms of their contract with these big corporations like Ford and. General 
General Motors and taking that money and giving it to organizations that directly protest the organizations or the corporations that they got money from. And you hear the argument all the time that, you know, oh, these characters were so young, they wouldn't know how to look for contract, you know, loopholes and contracts. It's like John Waters was 25 when he made Pink Flamingos. He was even younger when he was making movies like Multiple Maniacs. So I don't want to fucking hear that. Like, Bohemian artists were smart. They knew how to get what they wanted and they knew how to seize an opportunity and screw over the person that was trying to screw over them in return. They turned the tables. And that's what's kind of fun about a lot of these sort of like anti corporate artists who working with corporations, and then fucking them over. Uh, one of my first years in film school, we learned about reading contracts and talent releases. John Waters famously says in a stand-up routine that he, got, that he got kicked out of like every single college that he ever attended. Tiny Tim dropped out of high school. Ed Keenholz never finished college. Jackson Pollock got expel expelled from one school, you know? Uh, and the other thing to remember is that your solution to something doesn't have to be all-encompassing. It doesn't have to fix everything now. It has to fix something sometime. You know, you have to start somewhere. So if someone gives you a contract and say, hey, we're going to give you free rent, but your friend can't perform tomorrow night, you move that performance, you get the free rent, and it might not change everything. It might not solve hardly anything, but it solves something. If someone gives you $3,000 per segment, you take that money, you take the excess of that money from that corporation you hate, and you funnel it into the art community for people who don't have the same privileges as you. This is like the perfect segue into, into Benny. talking about <laughs> but, but if I can least just say favorite for, character in the entire if I can show. Just say I one just want to say, love Tay Diggs. <laughs> Love Tay Diggs. I would Tay Diggs is dead. Die for that man <laughs> and kill for it. If Tay, but, but Benny but, sucks. Benny but is like, terrible. The thing, the thing is that Benny is actually the most complex character in this movie because of the dynamic that they have to deal with. And they do more than just complain about the issues. You know, they're trying to work towards something, whether it's the thing that you like, whether it's the thing you support, they're actively working towards something and having to deal with multiple issues at the same time. Whereas everyone else in this movie is literally just complaining okay. about not getting their way and no one's seeing them as, you know, legit artists. Okay. But to be fair, to be fair, when they refused that contract, they had not yet made a lawyer friend. That's so, a fucking poor excuse. That's they, they didn't know how to. They like, didn't know how to game the system. I mean, John like, Waters is twenty five. Like a lot of they're the young artists. artists got like they're thrown so out. It's very hard of... to remember that they're young artists because when bringing back the original Broadway cast, you're like, these people are in their thirties. Shouldn't they have jobs? There are so many young artists that have gave the system. That, that's they're portraying kind of like young artists. They're more worried about ideals. selling out and like staying true to their ideals than they are about like reading the fine prints of. But at the same time, the Bohemian like, artists that we're talking like, about that need... they're based off <laughs> did the same thing, and they didn't have college. John Waters famously got kicked out of every college he went to, and he knew how to game the system. So you're talking about a misrepresentation I mean, of the Bohemian artists. Stole his first camera from a film school because he was exactly. like, so right, because I am an artiste. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, game the system. You know? I think this probably is the thing about this movie that makes NATO the angriest because he They're wrote so a whole stupid. paragraph. <laughs> They're so fucking stupid. Well, going back okay. to Benny, 
Uh, some yeah, of his Betty. nuances. A lot of his nuance is lost because they cut out a lot of things from the stage play. In the stage play, you find out he paid for Angel's uh, funeral. Mm -hmm. He does get comeuppance for cheating on his wife with uh, Mimi. He sort of makes up with them at the end. It's like, okay, we're going to forego the rent. He is actually a lot more friendly. They cut out all the nuance with him where he's just a complete villain. And I mean, are you really going to name the bad guy? His last name is Coffin. Right. No subtlety. It's like, it's like the ultimate redemption arc. Like, yes, he tries to play it nice that. with the rich people, and he realizes by the end that he's, like, burned bridges and destroyed relationships that used to be very near and dear to him. And I think he kind of gets a grip on that at the end. At least he does in the stage play. He really is my favorite character arc. I don't yeah. like Benny he, the Landlord, though. He's the only yes, character he arc, he's but... detestable. <laughs> Absolutely detestable. Only character arc. The best and most complex character besides Rosaria Dawson. Alright. Uh, and finally, <laughs> I think we have to round off our discussion of characters with the two babiest babies that ever did baby. Actually, can we uh, go back to Collins Benny for a second? And Angel DiMaggio. <laughs> okay, so the thing about Benny that I think is like a missed opportunity, right? And I say this with a lot of privilege, but like the idea of someone who comes from sort of like the area that they're trying to portray, sort of like that lower middle class, like idealized artist sort of like community, right? And trying to find success while not losing themselves and damaging the relationships they have, but still trying to make it good. Benny basically is established in the beginning of the movie for the reason they haven't had to pay rent for about a year because he's, you know, trying to balance that act. I think that's really something that's an interesting aspect that just isn't very much like elaborated on. Uh, he's using, he's using more... that to exploit them, though. He's like, okay, okay, listen up. Like, I'll, I'll excuse this, but, like, only if you don't make, like, me gentrifying this area, like, uncomfortable for me and my, like, uh, benefactors. <laughs> I don't really get that vibe, though. Because, <laughs> like, if, if that was the case, like, why would he not take rent from anyone on this block for, like, a freaking year, you know? Well, that's something that comes from the movie. Like, yeah, everybody's singing on that block, but the implication is from... He only made that deal with Roger and uh, yeah. Mark. Yeah, right, yeah. He didn't forego the rent for everybody. That he might have done something with Mimi because he and Mimi had a relationship past. That would be That would be some real, like... <laughs> some real strange shit for a landlord to do. It's really <laughs> weird that a landlord would give everyone eviction notices on the same day, you know, if he's, like, foregoing the rent. But, like, going back to the thing, you aren't trying to solve everyone's problems. Benny's not trying to solve everyone's problems. He's trying to preserve the relationships he has with dead girlfriend guy and I've, dumb filmmaker, you know? <laughs> So it doesn't no, really make sense to the entire block sing about like not paying rent for a year if that's not the case though. But you have chorus. You always have a chorus in like a musical, especially in like a big but number, you're like right in the beginning of the movie. But we already right. had we already had that big chorus with you know five hundred sixty five million three hundred Red Bulls up my ass or whatever. 
I don't know. Like, I still kind of got the sense that it was just them that didn't know how they were going to pay last year's rent. Then it would have just been also we're going to get like a, a cut from like Tay Diggs because. Sorry, Benny. <laughs> um, I would take a cut. Because he's too. not like Benny doesn't go up to like everyone and like collectively like give out a speech. He takes right. Mark and Roger to the side and he's like, yo, listen up. Like, if y'all <laughs> like a Right, because is... like he cares about them. This is what I've been saying yeah. this entire time, you know? You see Mimi and others burning eviction notices. So he did give eviction notice to everybody on the same day. And so that's why they're oh. all singing, we're not going to pay rent. But there is no implication yeah. that he made the deal with everybody but else. But I'm yeah. not, I'm not saying that. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm still saying that, like, the, this entire situation, like, the information that we're being given could have been, like, done a lot better because, like, everyone that is portraying in this chorus or not are saying, we're not going to pay rent. We're not going to pay this month's rent, last month's well, rent. Uh, they they may have been paying rent. We have no way of knowing, but everybody. But they getting say this year's because they're, this, they're, no, they're, yeah, they're, they listen, say this month's rent, no, last month's rent, this year's. That is literally that is literally break it up for a second. I think we can all agree that landlords typically do not have anybody's best interest in mind except their own. Mm-hmm, and sure. Benny is yeah. not supposed to be <laughs> a sympathetic a character. <laughs> I disagree Benny's with that. Benny's <laughs> counterpart in La Boheme, whose name I cannot remember, is also not a sympathetic character. It is literally somebody that is evicting people, whether it's for unpaid rent. I'm sure it's for some other shady reasons, because clearly, like, they are not living in, like, the most... He's kind of a slumlord, like, let's be honest. Like, for whatever reason, he is evicting those people, bottom line, because he wants to put up studios... And for, as he puts it, oh, it's going to be beneficial to us to create our art for us people that I'm like really close to. And I know because I'm going to help my own, but like all the homeless people and all the people that are, you know, not close to him are screwed. And like Benny's not a sympathetic character. (laughs) And we can all agree Mm -hmm. that landlords usually how are the the, how are the homeless better off in the hands of roger and mark can we can we please move on yes because i actually really do want to talk about collins and angel let's talk about collins and angel (laughs) because they're really like the emotional backbone of the show right yeah the sacrificial gaze like we can we can all we can all agree that like sacrificial gay though they may be angel demarche chenard is the best and most lovable character in the show. Disagree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have... Yes. I'm not going to make that joke till later. <laughs> <laughs> I think Rosario Dawson um, is better, but Angel's my, like, number two. Okay. That's fair. Um, so, Angel really, like, is so aptly named because... She really kind of descends into Mark and Roger's lives via Tom Collins and, like, blesses everybody with rent money (laughs) and, like, feel-good moments and, like, fierce attitude and love and care and support and then, like, tragically disappears. I think... So, I think for me, Angel brings up a question because one criticism that I have heard from people about Rent is that for Angel being such a central character and having HIV, 
AIDS, her, uh, her struggle with that, like, kind of just really takes a backdrop. Um, like, it's sad that she dies, obviously, and, you know, whatever, but it doesn't, like, really highlight it as much. So what do y'all have to say about that in regards to Angel's, Angel and Colin? Do you think that their struggle as a couple where one half is HIV positive, where they're two gay or queer people of color, um, do you think the film addresses that or does that justice enough? Addresses that enough or does that The answer is no. I think it's complicated, right? Mm -hmm. Because Rent is, is a long movie and an even longer stage show, and it kind of encompasses a bunch of different characters. So a lot of moments, both in the movie and the stage show, have to kind of pull double duty in order to be able to share those kind of stories within a time constraint. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of sucky that it comes at the expense of really getting to focus on Angel's decline and eventual death but i think that the way they handle it is tasteful and appropriate with the song like without you because that's the kind of a song that can mean a lot of different things depending on the characters you're focusing on like obviously it's about roger and mimi but it's also about collins and angel and like coming to terms with like death and like having to live on in a world without a person that you care so much and so deeply so, about. I, I really love Tom Collins and Angel together. Every time I watch it, I kind of forget for a moment when they're singing of I'll Cover You. I always forget that they've only been, known each other for like a day because there is such tenderness and love in the way that they sing it. And oh, true. I just, I, I adore that. I will say, I think that that is one area where they kind of improved in the movie because you do see Angel sort of deteriorating versus the mo the stage play where they sing Contact, which is a sex song, and she dies basically during the song. Like, like a blaze of glory moment. <laughs> yes, but there's more emotion with seeing her waste away during Without You and hearing, okay, well... Yes, Mimi's talking about I'm without you as in we're drifting apart from each other. Tom Collins is about to be without you as in Angel is dead. And what's more, you know, he's AIDS positive too. He's on his way next. I'm going to surprise everyone um, with this comment. Uh, I, I think that their chemistry is like some of the strongest chemistry we've seen in this entire podcast. Oh, um, true. And that absolutely <laughs> helps make the short time in comparison to some of the other characters that we have with them feel so much stronger. For sure. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they used to perform the show like eight nights a week together and like also in workshops. Like they're intimately familiar with those characters and like they've brought a lot of that chemistry from the stage show to the screen. I think that helps a lot. I'll cover I you is such a. I will admit that I tear up during the cover you reprise. Like only, once Colin starts singing, I I tear up. Yeah. I'll cover you the the first version 
specifically like it's such a simple song choreography wise like i kind of joked about like what's the choreography with this you're gonna walk down the street and then you're gonna (laughs) run for a little bit and then you're gonna make a turn but like the actors absolutely take every single second to show the chemistry between the characters uh how they absolutely feel about each other it's one of the strongest moments i think in this film for me because it's so simple but it could have been handled so badly because you could have just had two people walking down the street singing but there's so much character between them and i absolutely love that aspect right and i think the fact that it's so like happy and upbeat and like they're so obviously in love with each other makes it all the more heartbreaking when the reprise comes and collins is literally like singing it by himself at a funeral it it kind of it really breaks your heart. Yeah. Is there a song besides I'll cover you that's between the two characters in the stage show? Um speci- you mean specifically between Collins and Angel? Yeah. Uh there's you okay honey. And that's the only one I can which, remember. Yeah, which is kind of like it's their original conversation where they meet on the street, but set to music, basically. Yeah. It's super short. Super short. Um, Just curious. Thank you. Yeah. And again, I think that there probably could have been more, but a lot of it was sacrificed due to the fact that with intermission, the <laughs> stage show already pushes like two hours 15. Yeah. Speaking of, I, I think all of the things we just talked about, um, another thing I've kind of read and heard from people as a criticism of this movie slash play um, musical is that it kind of romanticizes poverty as opposed to like really shining a light on what some, um, on what like truly being like an impoverished artist could be. Um, that's also something that I've read about like the original opera is that, like, the original novel uh, kind of romanticized poverty a lot. And so what are y'all's thoughts on that? Is that based on my notes about all the equipment that Mark could have sold to pay his rent? Their apartment is huge. (laughs) Why is it so big? If they live in New York, there's no way they'd have an apartment that big. And it's rent controlled. Yeah. (laughs) Technically. Technically it's rent controlled. Rent controlled. Rent controlled. controlled. We don't have to pay rent. Rent, 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 rent. Um, I think, honestly, it doesn't seem, okay, hot take. Just because you set something to music doesn't, automatically make it romantic <laughs> go on <laughs> and i mean <laughs> i mean Amen. you you do have you do have these kind of moments in the stage show like um during it's beginning to snow which is a song that's not in the movie um where you see kind of this underground marketplace of homeless people, like, stealing and selling whatever they can to 
make a buck to buy some food to live another day. Like, what about that besides the fact that they're literally doing it as a Christmas song is romantic to you? Like, what part of an old lady living out on the street saying, who the fuck do you think you are? I don't need no goddamn help from some bleeding heart cameraman. My life's not for you to make a name for yourself on. What kind... What about that screams romanticism so would you say that this movie instead of like making it romantic actually shines a light on it and like just people are misreading that i'm i'm just this is stuff i read online so i'm just like, I, right trying I to start a conversation with, with it that. i would be on the middle road with that like i don't think it romanticizes it but it also doesn't really show the true horror of it it's it's not really rep- it's not trying to represent that it doesn't want to make, it doesn't really make comments about poverty. It, it goes a little bit more in the stage play where you also have little parts uh, during the It's Beginning to Snow where you have the street people actually singing. And they show a few homeless people in the movie, but it's never their story. Right. Even when this, even when the movie came out, like, right. HIV and AIDS was still, like, something that was partially romanticized. Drug use was being romanticized. This movie, I can give it absolute credit for not really romanticizing drug use. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is something important as far as, like, films go, that this was a very popular film. It made bank. um, And it didn't try to, like, make AIDS sexy or heroin sexy, you know? Unlike high art. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. So, time to wrap this up. What's the final verdict? NATO, would you agree this movie is worth a fee? Say, a $1,000 guarantee? Tax free? Or do you foretell this would do more well in doggy hell? I do not, absolutely do not, um, encourage or support murdering animals <laughs> but i also I don't know what don't... you're talking about this is definitely a movie for me and a, and a lot of people that i know that aren't theater majors that really loved it in high school and have grown to just like hate a lot of aspects of it as they grow old so like the things i dislike about this movie outweigh the things i like so i just wouldn't recommend it to be honest. all right so it's not worth uh 525 hours 600 minutes for you that's fine <laughs> it felt, it I, don't, like I don't know what you're talking about nato uh angel made it clear that all she did was play her drum and the dog jumped by itself that is a confession and that would not hold up in court would it have would it have been more palatable to you if it was in fact a parrot and angel's violin no one cares about birds. Um. <laughs> All right, Ro. Would you say yes. Rent is your one song glory, or would you rather put the candle out on this one? I will say that Rent has been a part of my life for a long time. I did the show the summer after my freshman year in college, and one of the most powerful experiences in my life was standing in that line stage front and singing seasons of love with a bunch of people who really meant it um 
So absolutely, yes, this movie is worth your time. All right, Mel, do you take this movie for what it was meant to be or do you leave it? Who it was meant to be. I I enjoy Rent. What's more is it's a musical, and a musical is only as good as its songs, and it has some great fucking songs, okay? You can dislike the characters all you do. I the songs. personally have many gripes about them. The older I get, the more I'm like, get a job, you hippies. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I still love all of the songs. Except your eyes, fuck your eyes. I, I'm sorry, I that song so much. But every other song, like I sing along every time, and I love it. So I think you should at least give it a shot. All right. Well, that's what we think. But if you've seen this movie or end up watching it later, we'd love to hear your thoughts or your experience with it. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Gay Ecapod. That's G A Y E C A P O D. While you're there, why not suggest a movie for us to watch in the future? We're always looking for more suggestions. We can't wait to experience more movies with you. Bye. Bye.